You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our gracious Lord, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, who in thy rest we find our security and our hope. I pray, O Lord, that your blessings would be upon us, enlighten our minds and convict our hearts. This I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, this is the last of a four-part series that I have here titled Christianity Admits the Cultural War. Uh, My primary goal has been, if you've been here the other ones, uh, I hope I have made this clear, is to show that even though it is a truism of our contemporary period that we live in a post-Christian era, post-church era, that is Christianity, the church as an institution, is not a dominant influence on in our society. It may be here in Birmingham, but as you well know in many other parts of the country, it's not. It is waning and in fact in many places it's derided and most people think it will never come back. That we are in a sense a decadent movement. We are decaying as a movement. Well, what I'm arguing is that that's wrong. And I'm arguing that in a couple of ways. One, I really believe and I think I can make an argument for this. I mean, I've been trying to do this in my whole professional career, is that the Christian gospel is sensible, it's defensible. It's not just a prejudice, it's not just a wish projection, but it has great truth to it. And so I think it's going to persist. And it's the core of our faith that we do believe in the eternal revelation of God in Christ. However, I also think that because I think our culture is in decay. Some people think the church is. Well, we may be, but I do think our culture is in decay. And I'm going to try to give you some statistics or charts here in just a minute to sort of confirm that point. And one of the reasons why I believe our culture... Now, Western civilization is this huge thing that encompasses Europe and every place else, but, but here our culture is in decay because there are some basic ideas at work that are exhausting themselves. That culture is defined by fundamental commitments that are beliefs, ideas, practices that people have. And what we're experiencing now is that our society has entertained some ideas, some beliefs that are quite old, that have long histories to them, and those ideas are not sustainable. That you cannot sustain a culture based upon these kind of ideas. And what I have done previously is to show that, I've only looked at three, today I'm going to look at a fourth, but the ideas of Gnosticism, which was an ancient religious movement that has been around off and on in various ways, but has become quite popular here, is exhausting itself. And it's one of the reasons why our culture is adrift. The other one was Epicureanism, very ancient philosophical movement, emphasized materialism and personal pleasure and individual Uh, actualization. So our culture has very much bought into uh, 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 Epicureanism. Did I say empiricism? I said Epicureanism. Uh, Anyway, uh, and I make an point here that it too has run out of steam. Epicureanism cannot sustain a culture. What I looked at last time was cynicism was an ancient philosophical movement as well. Cynicism is very suspicious of all claims because there are no truth claims. Very individualistic. 
well, <coughs> we've become a very cynical culture. And I looked at very representative this, and I think it too has exhausted itself. Well, Christianity obviously has something to offer. And what I'm wanting to do, uh, give me a minute here, I'm going to come back to this book in just a minute uh, when I introduce the fourth topic here today. But what is it that we have to offer? Uh, you know, Christianity is a complex movement with a lot of different expressions to it. In some ways, if you add up the 20 centuries of Christianity, you can kind of see it sort of condensed or summarized in its basic confessions of faith. All of these, I think, are accurate and faithful interpretations of Scripture, the apostolic witness and so on. And I think the Apostles' Creed, or excuse me, um, is obviously one of those. It's not the only way to express our faith, but it is, I think, a very viable way to express the tenets of our faith. And as if you were in the uh, 9 o'clock worship service, the Apostles' Creed was said. Uh, it's been said is probably the longest continuing shared confession of faith in Christianity. Uh, that it really maintains some fundamental commitments about who we are and the relationship to the world. First and foremost, that I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. That the earth is good. It's not an accident. It's not alien. Secondly, redemption is real. I believe in Jesus Christ. That is, this was a real event, that it occurred, that it's possible to be redeemed, that we're not lost in our sins and death and devil and so on. Thirdly, that history has a purpose, that God is at work in history. That we have a story to tell that's being unfolded from generation to generation. That we're part of this great cosmic scheme that God has in the world. And we're part of that. We're experiencing it. We're witnessing of it. And then finally, eternal life is possible. That it's possible to be in communion with our Creator for eternity. And this is the good news of the Gospel. All right, and I'm going to flip through this. Uh, I just don't have it set up where I can quickly go through this. I've looked at Epicureanism uh, there with uh, Epicurus, and I moved in. Uh, Excuse me. Cynicism. All right, here's what I want to talk about today. Now, in the order of service that people as money, I chose man as money. I know that sounds kind of sexist, and I don't mean it in that way. I try not to use language that would be that way, but it just sounds good. Man as money, I guess the two M's there. And that is, uh, I think what we deal with in our society today is the um, exhaustion of this notion that money defines the essence of what it means to be a human, that the core of our culture is economic success, that the core of who we are in our lives is to thrive in this kind of way, defined by the value of money, man as money. Now, I'm going to bring together two people here that you may be surprised that they are brought together in the same discussion. One is Karl Marx, whom you know, uh, at least you may know the name of Karl Marx. I'll say something about him in just a second. And the other one is Gordon uh, Gecko. Victor, who is Gordon Gecko? Wall Street. That's right. Fixed additional character in that uh, Oliver Stone movie, Wall Street. Well, uh, what I'm going to argue, even though if probably be, if there really were, and there, there probably are people who are like Gordon Gecko, but if you had Gordon Gecko and Karl Marx in this room, they'd beat each other's throats with knives. However, though, what I'm going to argue is that there are two sides of one coin. 
because at the basis of Marxism and at the basis of geckoism is this idea that money is everything, it defines the essence of reality. Now, Karl Marx is indeed one of the most influential people uh, in Western society and Eastern societies too. You can define China in some ways as the influence, Vietnam, North Korea by the influence of Karl Marx, who's a very fascinating person, by the way, <coughs> in, in some ways a very tortured person um, who, who lived uh, a very, um, in, in some ways, uh, a very simple life, but a very, very conflicted life. Jewish, never really was all that religious in, in his faith. Uh, German, lived in Tyr, Germany. And he became a socialist early in his education. He was influenced by a very famous German philosopher named Hegel, uh, who was a brilliant philosopher in my opinion. And he was very much uh, one of the main sort of ideal setters for Marx. But he, as he said, turned Hegel up on his head. Hegel felt like ideas were shaping history. Well, what Marx said is that it was actually concrete economic reality shaping history. That everything is being defined by the socio-economic reality. That there's nothing greater than any of that. And so he becomes very prominent in the socialist movement in Europe. He is a cantankerous person. He's in and out with these various socialist movements. Lives in Paris for a couple of years. That's where he meets Friedrich Engel. Uh, also a socialist, becomes kind of a disciple of Marx, uh, inherited great wealth. Uh, he helped underwrite much of what Marx was trying to do. And then in 1849, Marx moved to London, and it's that where he did most of his great work. I'm going to talk about two of his books here in just a minute. But the picture there on the right is uh, where he is buried. He is buried in East Highgate Cemetery in London. Any of you been there? I've been, I've been to that various place. Uh, if you cannot read the inscription on it, often this, part, this is defaced. People come and throw paint on it and so on. Is, uh, workers of the world arise. One of the great claims of Marxism is that it will be able to unite all the workers who have been oppressed, bring them to a, a sort of an enlightened state, and start the revolution for social justice. All right, here are not the only two great things that he wrote, but the two most influential things that he wrote. The Communist Manifesto, which is a small little book, it is really what gave him his fame. And he talked about the oppression of, of, the, of the capital class, those who owned capital and owned labor, and those who worked for them. And why the total, I mean, the, the immense pervasive social injustice there in industrialized Europe, both in Germany, France, and in England. You remember, the, I mean, this is the Charles Dickens era, the poorhouse idea. And there was tremendous disparity in society, tremendous poverty in society. And he believed that he came up with an explanation why that's the case, and also a solution to it. And it's a communist, not socialist, communist, that everything's going to be common here the Communist Manifesto. This is a declaration, in other words. And what it is a declaration for is that concluding statement. Workers of the world unite. That is, we're starting the revolution. We're going to overcome the economic exploitation of the poor. All right, the other one over there, Das Kapital, and it still goes by its German title. Literally, it means the capital. And what that means is not like the capital of, of Alabama is Montgomery, but in terms of money. Capital is money. 
All right, and it, it, it is an incredible accomplishment what he did. Uh, you, it's two volumes, sometimes it's published in three volumes, each is about four or five hundred pages thick. Anybody here seen it, ever take a look at it? It, it, it you'd have to take a lot of uh, stimulants to <laughs> complete it. It is, it is a mind-boggling accomplishment what he does. He spent years and years, he dies in 1883, he started researching in the British Library uh, in about 1850. So for you know, good 25 years or so, he does unbelievable, minute research on the cost and uh, uh, production of products. He has chapters on how much goose, uh, how much it took to produce goose, uh, chairs, tables. It's just on and on, the, the custom rates, the currency rates. And uh, you may think, why was he doing this? Why, why should I be interested in you know, how much you know, geese cost there in London in 1860? Well, what he thought is that he had come up with a way to ascertain the amount of exploitation in everything. The shoes you wear, the, cha the chair you're sitting upon, the tie I have. He came up with a formula. He really did. He thought he had this, this infallible formula. He considered all this just economic science to measure the amount of exploitation of the bourgeois class against the proletariat. Everything then becomes a symbol of your economic exploitation or your exploiting of other people. We are all reduced then to this conflict of economy. All right, what I've done here is given sort of six very, very general principles that Marx was trying to argue about why we're just defined by our money, our economy. One, reality is a social economic situation, period. That's it. There's nothing greater or lower than that. This is the sum total of human culture economic realities. Two, societies are divided between, and these are the words he used here, bourgeois, which is, uh, uh, it has various meanings, by the way, but it's a French term that he used to refer to the capital class, those who own property, and then the proletariat, those who work for them. And this formula that he came up with, which he called dialectical materialism, showed how much that the proletariat was losing himself, herself, in working in a capitalist society, a society dominated by capital owners. And so every time you worked and, and got paid a wage, even though you got a wage, part of you was taken away from yourself. We are producers. We're just workers, according to Marx. And so therefore, the more you contribute to the capitalist system, the more you become alienated. And he felt like he came up with a way to express that. Everything expresses economics. Uh, he, he, he was you know, everything was simply sort of interpreted, the haves and the haves not, the bourgeois, the proletariat. You could read anything and all things according to that kind of conflict. Fourthly, religion is the opening of the masses and the side of the press, one of the most quoted lines by, uh, by Marx. In fact, you cannot really have social justice, that is the elimination of the exploitation of the workers, until you get rid of religion. And the, and the reason why for Marx is that if you believe in God and eternal life, you, you're looking elsewhere, not looking here, wanting to change things. So it becomes a drug, an opium, and you just sigh. That's all. But you can't change this world, so, so you hope for a better world. And fifthly, the dictatorship of the proletariat, which he felt was necessary for there to be social justice. And then finally, the end of all this is a total just society 
in which it is a classless society. Until we get rid of classes, we're not going to have full social justice. Now, uh, you know, Marxism has been attractive to many people because it does promote justice. And we do think justice is fairness. And we do think oppression of other people, whether it's done systematically or individually, is something wrong. And so there's always been somewhat of an attraction to Marxism. And I can understand that. We all should be committed to social justice. We should seek for more fairness and merit in our society. But I would say this. What Marx does, though, is that he uses that common virtue of justice here as a way of promoting this uh, economic understanding of human reality. That you've got to get the economics right, then you'll get human nature right. You've got to have an economically just system in which all things are in common before you can have fulfilled human beings. As a political system, now I know this may sound extravagant for some people, but I think I'm right in making this claim. There's been, uh, Marxism as a political system is an utter failure. Every system that is committed to complete Marxism has proven itself to be tyrannical, unproductive, and in the end, a, an exhausted political system. The 20th century long is proof of this. How many millions of people were killed under regimes that were committed to this idea that we can reduce human nature to this conflict of economic classes here, and we can eliminate that by eliminating the capital class. And so, what do you do with opposition? You either transform them or you eliminate them. This is at the heart of Marxism. Now, I, 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 I want to be really clear on this. We should be committed to social economic justice. That is at the heart of our Christian faith. Just go from Genesis to Revelation and look at all the times in which you know, God defends the poor against the rich. That's at the heart of our faith. But this, though, gets at a solution to that problem by reducing us just to economic class conflicts. All right, that's Marxism. Now, the other side of this is this very powerful movie here. Oliver Stone called Wall Street. Who has seen it? Yeah, it, it's a magnificent movie. I have to say that. I have to say, though, it's a very disturbing movie. I think the first time I saw it, I think I actually had a nightmare about this. Uh, I mean, it can all, I mean, in a sense, good wins out in the end, uh, which is, was good. But uh, Gordon Gekko becomes a symbol of just greed. In fact, that's one of the famous lines from that movie. Greed is good. Money is essence of human nature. The more you have it, the more human you are. The more power you have, if you have more money, the more you're able to control an economic system because that's exactly what we are, part of an economic system. And that's what makes him so persuasive and so powerful. He's this man who manipulates markets, who actually is a crook and a criminal and all this, and he is infant, uh, very, very wealthy and so on. Okay, at this point, what I want to do then is to look at some things from this book. A couple of charts here. I'll quickly move through some of these. I have mentioned this book uh, previously. It's called Adrift by Scott Galloway. A hundred charts here showing the sort of demise of our culture here, the, uh, the exhaustion of our culture, and the word that he uses is adrift. And one of his claims here, he's a marketing sociologist, is that the strength of a society is found in the strength of its middle class. It's not only the great majority, it's the middle class that, 
that relies upon and sustains the primary institutions of society. And what he is arguing here is that some things are going on in our society that is drastically eroding the stability of the middle class. Uh, I'm not going to have enough time to look at all these, but I'm going to try to pick the more salient ones. Uh, you know, if you don't know much about me, I'm a retired uh, university professor from Sanford University, and I've been in this business a long time. And one of the strains that we've had in higher education is what is the purpose of a college degree? All right. In 1973, 7% of the jobs required a master's degree or higher. And 32%. Yeah, 7%, 1973. That's the year I graduated from college. 32% uh, required only a high school degree. All right, that's 1973. 40% uh, required, no, no, I, I see. 40% required a high school degree, 32% less than a high school degree. So in 1973, if you didn't have a high school degree, 32% of the jobs out in our marketplace were available to you. All right, in the year 2020. Now, 11% of the jobs in our market requires a master's degree or higher. Of course, the professions have always required that, law, medicine, academia, ministry, and so on, always required professional training. But just generally now, to get a, a, a successful job, you have to have a, at least a master's degree. Here are the more alarming statistics, though. Only 24% of the jobs in our market require a high school diploma. That's down from 40. And 12% no high school diploma, down from 32%. Which means what? That's right. And what's the purpose of education? Yeah, to get a job. And that means you're part of the system. Economics is determining education. I mean, I was in humanities. I taught you know, philosophy and theology, and <clears throat> that makes me a stepsister in all this. Uh, what, what role is the humanities? I mean, I mean Sanford you know, tries to be a sort of a Christian university with a liberal arts basis and all that, but I was always having to justify why I teach Aristotle or why read Augustine. I was always trying to defend the validity. Why is that? Because how, how are you going to get a job, you know, if all you know is this, this sort of interesting, fluffy stuff? Well, uh, this is an indication, as, as Galloway says, that we are adrift. Um, I, I, I'm going to only look at two more. I actually have about ten here I wanted to look at. This one also is interesting. Uh, this is advertising revenue. All right, in the year 2011, not all that long ago, advertising revenue in the U.S. was $150 billion. 20% of that was for digital technology. 20%. All right. Now, in the year 2020, advertising revenue is $250 billion. 63% of that is in digital technology. What does this do to newspapers, Victor? <laughs> All right. And here's something else. 
of that 63% digital technology in advertising revenue, Facebook and Google have 54% of that. One third of every dollar spent on advertising comes from Facebook and Google. Now, what does that mean for them? Tremendous, tremendous amount of wealth generated by Facebook and Google. In fact, uh, uh, I think it's, it's fluctuated a little bit, so I, I may be wrong if I am. Uh, just bear with me for a second. Eight, eight out of the top ten valuable companies in the world are digital companies. Or were early this year. Sorry? Or were early this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Apple now, I think, is the most wealthy company in the world. Apple, it's, it replaced uh, Saudi Arabia, Aramco, uh, last year or so, yes. Run by an Auburn graduate. Yeah, that's right. Uh, from, from Mobile, is that right? He's, he's an Auburn graduate, yeah. Is he giving much money to Auburn? He, they may need him to buy another coach. Uh, yeah. But you know what else is involved in that? It wasn't a category you mentioned. It was two companies. 64% or whatever the number yeah, you yeah, said was yeah. split between. 54%, yeah. You know, that's an incredible um, power. It's about not just money, but power. That's right. Uh, I, I, I couldn't find the chart. I looked and looked a couple of times, but I do remember reading that their stock value, the stock value of Google and Apple and Facebook, well, now Meta and all those other things, uh, the stock value is something like, I don't know, 100% more than their actual production. That here, all of this tremendous wealth. So Apple is $2.8 trillion. Now, you, you probably have an Apple phone. Uh, everyone seems to have an Apple this or that. But the stock value is far more valuable than that phone itself and what it takes to make the phone and to sell the phone. Which means, where is the great value? Where is the money? Where is the tremendous load of wealth in our society? <coughs> it's in the stock market. Uh, and so if you can manipulate the stock market, just like our man Gordon here can, or did, then you can amass a tremendous amount of wealth. All right, I, I'm, I'm out of my league and all this kind of economic stuff, I have to admit. I mean, I can read a chart. Uh, but I, you know, I, I can't explain all that. But here's the point in this. We have a system that values money to such an extent that we will come up with an economy in which you can generate tremendous, tremendous, mind-boggling wealth and not really have to produce a whole lot with it by manipulating a stock market. You know, uh, I'm not going to chase this rabbit. Uh, I think that's an issue. Yes. Um, just in the, you're using going back to primary sources. Well, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, this critique that I'm giving here is not against Adam Smith's form of free market supply and demand. In fact, I think that of all economic systems is the most healthy system, definitely. Because it does recognize what people want, and it does have a way of... of uh, uh, raising up the lower class because everybody gets involved and Adam Smith and I'll if, if this is what you're trying to do I'll agree with you on this he was actually trying to help the poor to get out of poverty he wasn't trying to help the rich to dominate the poor he wasn't at all and in some ways Gordon Gecko is a perversion of the free market system 
I mean, he, he's not really for the free market system. And you're right, you know, these very powerful people have been able to tweak not only like, you know, the Wall, uh, Wall Street, the stock market, but they've been able to tweak government as well. Nearly every one of these, you know, top 10 companies in the United States in some ways get a lot of the largesse, I mean, a lot of their, their money from the largesse of the, of the government. That's what makes them almost impregnable. And I think that's part of the problem again. Once again, we're reducing who we are, our value in society, to how much you can contribute to this kind of, this dominance through money. Yes? I wonder if we get... It was a little over $8 billion was lost in a couple of days. Once again, that's just hard to conceive. $8 billion. Where, how, where does it go? <laughs> how did it come here? You know, used to, like with, you know, uh, Standard Oil and uh, big automakers and so on, you had products right there. You saw things. We moved to a consumer society. That's the whole value. Not, the, not that we're producers. We're more defined by our consuming. I've, I've seen this compared to the uh, Enron scandal. Yeah. Uh, it's basically the same sort of thing, really. Well, m my point on this uh, is what we're seeing and I think what we've seen in the high-tech companies laying off a lot of people recently. Now, once again, I'm out of my league in saying this is some sort of trend. I, I don't know that, but I do know this, that that commitment that you are most valuable, you are most productive, you are most significant if you have the most money in our society is exhausting our culture. And it's, and it's going to create even more of a collapse where people, you know, one day are a billionaire and the next day they're not, they, they lose it nearly all, and they wonder what happened. How can power and money and significance evaporate so quickly? And my point is, is because it's vapid to begin with. It's a shallow way of valuing human culture to begin with. Shallow yardstick. Right, right. And we should know, as the church, that to be true. And we are, and I'll try to articulate this. You can all you know, have your own take on this. Well, we have something to offer in counterbalance to that. All right, just a summary of this. The consequence of man as money or people as, as money. It's reductionism. That is, it's, you're just reduced to how you contribute to the economy. And the more you contribute, the powerful and significant you are. Stifles the human spirit. We are more than that. Who we are created by God in God's image. <coughs> Endowed with capabilities to be responsible to God, but we, in our own way, corrupt that. We fail at doing that. Nonetheless, we have a potential, a capacity that just Gordon Gecko and Karl Marx cannot fulfill. They cannot. We are more than that. We are made to love. We really are. We are, we are made to love God, to love each other. This is when we're at our best. We're made to solidify relationships as being part of a community of people. That it's significant that we know each other not just as workers and consumers, but that we know each other as brothers, sisters, father, mothers, relatives, friends, neighbors. These, these, are, these are rich theological terms that define us, that are absent, I think, in this, this notion that we are reduced just to how we contribute to an economy. And then beauty. Um, uh, just quickly, I remember in, in Wall Street, uh, Bud goes to his house, there are all these really, you know, beautiful paintings there. And he was talking about it, and I forget the exact line. He, was, he said, well, well, what is that? And they, 
you know, Gecko and his girlfriend at that time defined it only in terms of how much money it took. In 19, I think it was 1995, I was in London for a while, uh, part of a semester, and I went to the Tate Museum, and there was an exhibit, a huge exhibit, a couple of floors there on the huge Tate Museum of just art under uh, the dictators of the 20th century. That's uh, Nazi art, communist art, and fascist art. And in Marxism, art has to serve the agenda of, of, the, of the dictatorship of the proletariat. So there's no just appreciation for beauty in itself. What, what, what I want to argue here is that something is really, really robbed from our experience to take that out. That is, we should have things that frankly are not worth anything in our lives. I know that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? You should have a piece of art that's not worth anything. It's just beautiful. It's just something we appreciate. This is what I'm arguing is, is when we're at our best, when we you know, appraise the great works of God in the creation. Uh, secondly, I think it really engenders division and hatred. Uh, haves and have not becomes more than just a distinction between people. It becomes a matter of jealousy and an envy and of con condemning and condescending attitudes that we're never going to create, really, I think. Uh, this is one of the great failures of Marxism. Even though it aimed for social justice, in the end it created more exploitation. Why? Because it reduced the human nature to this kind of simplistic formula. Thirdly, it promotes superficial values, status over substance, the temporary over the permanent. These are superficial values. I mean, they work for a little bit, but will it ever really enable you to love your grandchildren more or love your husband more? Will it ever really able, enable you to sing the praises of God with more of a robust, pure heart? And my answer is no, it doesn't. These are the things that we're best at. Here's Christianity's response. Uh, humanity's experience, purpose, and fulfillment in the right relationship to all-encompassing transcendent truths. I know that's a mouthful, but what it means is seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you. This is when we're at our best. We have a chance now in our society in which we're seeing the demise of this idea of people as money, the bankruptcy, to use an economic term, of people as money here, as a way of showing this is when you're at your best. This is when we get our deepest satisfaction, when we have the, 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 the great sense of a fulfillment of what it means to be a, 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 a person made in the image of God in God's world is when I seek first the image of God, I mean the kingdom of God. Secondly, proper relationships. This is key. This is one of the things, remember I said about Epicureanism. We can't do this alone. We are in relationships. We're made communal, to be communal. We're made to be in relationship. In fact, I love how in Genesis 2, uh, it, uh, it describes the making of the first person out of dust and breath. And here we are, very fragile. And what's the first thing that you know, uh, uh, Adam does? He starts talking to animals. Why? Because he has to be in right relationships with things. And that's not enough. And so God makes Eve. And now he starts talking to her, bone of my bone, bone of my flesh. And they're talking to God. They have to be in right relationships with one another. At the heart of our faith is this kind of notion that we have a way of defining when we are at our best. Love of God and neighbor, relationships, then vocation. I think this is something. There, there, now, of course, a lot of work is just tedious. In fact, because of our own sinfulness, 
Because of our own corruption, we can pervert work, even if it's great work. We can do it because of our sinfulness. But it is important to have a calling. And that, that, that can be a domestic calling, that I'd like to be the best father that I can do. I can be. That's a calling. Or I can be the best professor or the best lawyer or whatever, the best manager, the best worker at, at the grocery store, that this is a calling, that we have something to contribute to this world. Then work and then money. Money occurs at the end, not at the beginning. Thirdly, life is stewardship, not lordship. We don't own anything. We really don't. God owns it all. We're stewards. We're responsible. God makes Adam and Eve put some weir in a garden. To do what? To garden. This is when we're at our best. When we bring the great goodness out of creation. When we show the, the fertility of the love of God embedded in all aspects of our lives, all of our relationships, when I, by my own efforts, my intellect, my emotions, my experiences, are able to bring the best out in you. That's when I'm at my best. And then fourthly, the importance of the Sabbath. I think this is one of the great contributions that the church can offer to society. We often think of the sixth day as the crown of creation because we got on we showed up on the sixth day and, hey, that's why God made the world. Wrong. You will fail the test if that's your answer. Why did God make the world? So that there could be a Sabbath rest. That's why God made the world. So you work for six days to rest on the Sabbath. You don't rest on the Sabbath to, so you can go back to work. No, you work so that you can take a day off to remember that we're all part of the good, great, integrated system that God made. And we should relish the experiences of being a creature in God's world. And we can, and, and I think maybe, maybe we have diminished this capacity that we have, or, or overlooked it, or something, that on the Sabbath, we have the capacity to commune with God in unique and special ways. You know, they thought this through. Every seventh day, no one's to work, all to rest. Every seventh year, no one's to work. Not even your cattle, your mules, your donkeys, your field. No one's to work on the seventh. So you work for six years to just on that seventh year, just to bask in existence with God. And then every seventh sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee, everything starts over. Everything. This is a way that the scriptures try to realize why we're here. What's the purpose of all this? That when it boils down to it, I'm not defined by my money. When it boils down to it, I'm defined by my relationship to God, to others, and to the world. All right, I want to bring this to a conclusion then. Uh, very briefly, what I tried to do in the first session when we talked about Gnosticism, Gnosticism has sort of a paradoxical notion that the world is dark and alien, but we're divine and special because of our inward sparks of divinity that I think our, and I think that is, is proving to be rather superficial in our society, that's not fulfilling us, that in response to that, what we have to offer in our Christian witness is the goodness of life and Christ's redemption. Or to Epicureanism, in which we are just atoms falling through space with a little interesting swirl that causes things to be what they are, but when it boils down to it, all that we can have are just sort of simple pleasures, and we should be content with that. Because in the end, 
it's all about you. It's all about you. That what we have to offer to that is this idea that life is a pilgrimage, not a wandering. We're not wanderers as Christians. We seek a city not made by hands of men, but by God. We're pilgrims onto that, onto that, in that journey to seek the greater experiences and greater visions of what God has to offer us. And so we're pilgrims to God in love. Our response to cynicism in which, you know, we're uh, just kind of uh, at each other's throat all the time. We're very suspicious of one another. We don't affirm any kind of lasting truths. Uh, what I, I think our proper response is to the church as a holy community. This is when, now in our contemporary society, that we as Christians in a church need to show the value of our relationships with one another. That we know how to forgive one another. We know how to be merciful to one another. We know how to be joyful with one another. We know how to praise God for one another. We can live in a, a holy community. That we not only do the holy sacramental acts, but we also should believe. And I think this is, this is therapeutic, to use it in a good sense for our society, that our fellowship here is the actual communion of the Holy Spirit in our midst. If you want to know how to get to eternity, if you want a little taste of the divine, there, come and join our fellowship, because in our midst is the Holy Spirit. And then today, the takeaway from this is that in light of this kind of reductionism of man as money, what we have to offer is the Sabbath, that there's something greater in all this. There's something wonderful about life. And it's not reduced to just money and production and stuff like that, even though those, those are important. I'm not dismissing outright their value. But what I'm saying is that we justify our money by whether it contributes to our Sabbath rest, not the other way around. All right, so in conclusion, this is not a time to give up. In a post-Christian era, post-church society, we shouldn't wave the white flag and say, all right, we're just going to retreat on our little enclaves and reassure ourselves that we're doing the right thing. No, this is the time in which perhaps, and this is my contention, that the Christian witness in our society can be at its greatest in our society. Even though there have been great times, the Great Awakenings and so in our society, but we may be on the verge of another Great Awakening, that we can <coughs> offer something to our society that it's not finding in these other ideas. All right, I've got a minute or two before we leave. Anyone have a comment? Yes. Here's not where it is. We're looking in the wrong place. Right, that's a good point too. In some ways, it all is in some ways abstract. You know, it's it, you know, it used to be on you know, paper stuff in your billfold. Now it's a figure on a computer screen. You know. I, I, lately, I've been asking, do you take money? <laughs> Everything's just uh, now in the digital world. It's amazing how abstract that is. Yeah. And that's what money affords. Right. Right. I agree. Uh, I, I retired back in April, at, and one of the first things I learned to do is quit looking at my investments. <laughs> Stock market went down. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've retired maybe at a wrong time. But anyway, I, I thought, well, gosh, I'm, wealth is just flying away from me here in my waning years. Anyone else? I th yes. I just was uh, interested in your comment about a possible uh, great awakening. I'd like to hear more. 
Well, I think that think that uh, that definitely is a possibility. Now, I will say this: we won't have a great awakening if the church starts to emulate these ideas in order to think it can succeed in society. We will not have a revival of what it means to be the people of God if we think we should be more Epicurean or more Gnostic or more whatever, Gordon Gekko. Uh, that won't work. We will, we will just contribute to the melee of our culture, I think, that way. Uh, we should believe in these truths, like what the Apostle Creed says. We should believe in those. We should believe the scriptural witness of what God has done in the world in Christ and so on. This will enrich the human soul. One more comment, then we'll leave. Yes. Eric Metaxas. Well, thank you for coming. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.